I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Thanks for listening to The New Yorker Fiction Podcast. As you know, every month I invite a current fiction writer to read and discuss a story from The New Yorker archive. What you may not know is that The New Yorker Fiction Podcast isn't the only place to hear readings of short stories from the magazine. Each week, we invite the author of the short story in that week's issue to record his or her piece for The New Yorker's website. Starting later this month, we'll be making those recordings available for free on a new podcast called The Author's Voice, New Fiction from The New Yorker. To give you a special preview of what you can expect on The Author's Voice, we've put together this anthology of three recent readings. First, you'll hear Michael Cunningham reading his updated fairy tale, Little Man, which appeared in the magazine's August 10, 2015 issue. Next will be Zadie Smith reading her story, Escape from New York, which was published in the June 8, 2015 issue. And finally, Tom Hanks, reading his fiction piece, Alan Bean Plus Four, which appeared in the magazine in October of 2014. If you like what you hear, please remember to subscribe to The Author's Voice. Just search for The Author's Voice in your podcast app. We'll be back here next month with a new episode of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast. Enjoy the readings. Little man. What if you had a child? If you had a child, your life would be about more than getting through the various holiday rushes and wondering exactly how insane Mrs. Witters in accounts payable is going to be on any given day. It'd be about procuring tiny shoes and pull toys and dental checkups. It'd be about paying into a college fund. The unextraordinary house to which you return nightly, it'd be someone's future Er house. It'd be the place that someone would remember decades hence as a seat of comfort and succor, its rooms rendered larger and grander, exalted by memory. This sofa, those lamps, purchased in a hurry, deemed good enough for now, they seem to be here still years later, they'd be legendary to someone. Imagine reaching the point at which you want a child more than you can remember ever wanting anything else. Having a child is not, however, anything like ordering a pizza. Even less so if you're a malformed dwarfish man whose occupation, were you forced to name one, would be, hmm, what would you call yourself? A goblin? An imp? Adoption agencies are reluctant about doctors and lawyers if they're single and over 40. So go ahead. Apply to adopt an infant as a 200-year-old gnome. You are driven slightly insane. You try to talk yourself down. It works some nights better than others by the fact that for so much of the population, children simply appear. Bing, bang, boom. A single act of love and nine months later, this flowering, as mindless and senseless as a crocus bursting out of a bulb. It's one thing to envy wealth and beauty and other gifts that seem to have been granted to others, but not to you, by obscure but undeniable givers. 
It's another thing entirely to yearn for what's so readily available to any drunk and barmaid who link up for three minutes in a dark corner of any dank and scrofulous pub. You listen carefully, then, when you hear the rumor. Some impoverished miller, a man whose business is going under, the small mill owners, the ones who grind by hand, are vanishing. Their flour and meal cost twice as much as the big brand products, which are free of the gritty bits that can find their way into a sack of flour no matter how careful you are. A man who has no health insurance or investments or pension plan. He's needed every cent just to keep the mill open. That man has told the king that his daughter can spin straw into gold. The miller must have felt driven to it. He must have thought he needed a claim that outrageous to attract the attention of the king. You suppose, as an aspiring parent yourself, you prefer to think of other parents as underanged. He's hoping that if he can get his daughter into the palace, if he can figure out a way for her to meet the king, for the king to see the pale grace of the girl's neck and her shy smile and hear the sweet clarinet tone of her soft but surprisingly sonorous voice, the king will be so smitten, doesn't every father believe his daughter to be irresistible, that he'll forget about the absurd straw-into-gold story. The miller is apparently unable to imagine all the pale-necked, shyly smiling girls the king has met already. Like most fathers, he finds it inconceivable that his daughter may not be singular, that she may be lovely and funny and smart, but not so exceptionally so as to obliterate all the other contending girls. The miller, poor, foolish, doting father that he is, never expected his daughter to be locked into a room full of straw and commanded to spin it all into gold by morning, any more than most fathers expect their daughters to be unsought after by boys or rejected by colleges or abused by the men they eventually marry. Such notions rarely appear on the spectrum of paternal possibility. It gets worse. The king, who really hates being duped, announces from the doorway of the cellar room filled with straw that if the girl hasn't spun it all into gold by morning, he'll have her executed. <laughs> what? <laughs> now, wait a minute. The miller starts to confess, to beg forgiveness. Uh, he was joking. No, he was sinfully proud. He wanted his daughter to meet the king. He was worried about her future. I mean, your majesty, you can't be thinking of killing her. The king gives the miller a glacial look, has a guard escort him away, and withdraws, locking the door behind him. Here's where you come in. You're descended from a long line of minor wizards. Your people have for generations been able to summon rain, exercise poltergeists, find lost wedding rings. No one in the family, not in the past few centuries at any rate, has thought of making a living at it. It's not respectable. It smells of desperation. And, as is the way with spells and conjurings, it's not 100% reliable. It's an art, not a science. Who wants to refund a farmer's money as he stands destitute in his still-parched fields? Who wants to say, I'm sorry, it works most of the time, to the elderly couple who still hear cackles of laughter coming from under their mattress? 
whose cutlery still jumps up from the dinner table and flies around the room. When you hear the story about the girl who can supposedly spin straw into gold, it's the talk of the kingdom, you don't immediately think this might be a way for me to get a child. That would be too many steps down the line for most people. And you, though you have a potent heart and ferocity of intention, are not a particularly serious thinker. You work more from instinct. It's instinct, then, that tells you, help this girl, and good may come of it. Maybe simply because you, and you alone, have something to offer her. You, who've never before had much to offer any of the girls who passed by, leaving traces of perfume in their wake, a quickening of the air they so recently occupied. Spinning straw into gold is beyond your current capabilities, but not necessarily impossible to learn. There are ancient texts. There's your Aunt Farfalli, who's older than some of the texts, but still alive, as far as you know, and the only truly gifted member of your ragtag cohort, who are generally more prone to make rats speak in Flemish or to summon beetles out of other people's Christmas pies. Castles are easy to penetrate. Most people don't know that. Most people think of them as fortified, impregnable. Castles, however, have been remodeled and revised over and over by countless generations. There was a child king who insisted on secret passageways with peepholes that opened through the eyes of the ancestral portraits. There was the paranoid king who had escape tunnels dug, miles of them, opening out into woods, country lanes, and graveyards. So, when you materialize in the chamber full of straw, it has nothing to do with magic. The girl, though, is surprised and impressed. Already you've got credibility. And at first glance, you see why the miller thought his gamble might work. She's a true beauty, slightly unorthodox, in the way of most great beauties. Her skin is as smooth and poreless as pale pink china. Her nose ever so slightly longer than it should be. Her brown-black eyes wide-set, sable-lashed, all but quivering with curiosity, with depths. She stares at you. She doesn't speak. Her life since this morning has become so strange to her. She who yesterday was sewing grain sacks and sweeping stray corn kernels from the floor that the sudden appearance of a twisted and stub-footed man just under four feet tall, with a chin as long as a turnip, seems merely another in the new string of impossibilities. You tell her you're there to help. She nods her thanks. You get to work. It doesn't go well at first. The straw, run through the spinning wheel, comes out simply as straw, shredded and bent. You refuse to panic, though. You repeat silently the spell taught to you by Aunt Farfalee, who is by now no bigger than a badger, with blank white eyes and fingers as thin and stiff as icicles. You concentrate. Belief is crucial. One of the reasons that ordinary people are incapable of magic is a simple dearth of conviction. And, eventually, yes... The first few stalks are only touched with gold, like eroded relics, but the next are more gold than straw. And soon enough, the wheel is spitting out strand upon strand of pure golden straw. 
Not the hard yellow of some gold, but a yellow suffused with pink, ever so slightly incandescent in the torchlit room. You both, you and the girl, watch enraptured as the piles of straw dwindle and the golden strands skitter onto the limestone floor. It's the closest you've come yet to love, to love making. You at the spinning wheel and the girl behind you as she forgetfully puts her gentle hand on your shoulder, watching in shared astonishment as the straw is spun into gold. When it's all finished, she says, My lord, you're not sure whether she's referring to you or to God. Glad to be of service, you answer. I should go now. Let me give you something. No need. But still, she takes a strand of beads from her neck and holds them out to you. They're garnets, cheap, probably dyed. So in this room, at this moment, with all that golden straw emanating its faint light, there is potently red-black as heart's blood. She says, my father gave me these for my 18th birthday. She drapes the necklace over your head. An awkward moment occurs when the beads catch on your chin, but the girl lifts them off and her fingertips brush against your face. The strand of beads falls onto your chest, onto the declivity where were you a normal man, your chest would be. Thank you, she says. You bow and depart. She sees you slipping away through the secret door, devoid of hinges or knobs, one of the many commissioned by the long-dead paranoid king. That's not magic, she says, laughing. No, you answer, but... Magic is sometimes all about knowing where the secret door is and how to open it. With that, you're gone. You hear about it the next day as you walk along the outskirts of town, wearing the strand of garnets under your stained woolen shirt. The girl pulled it off. She spun the straw into gold. And the king responds, Do it again tonight in a bigger room with twice as much straw. He's joking, right? He's not joking. This, after all, is the king who passed the law about putting trousers on cats and dogs, who made laughing too loudly a punishable crime. According to rumor, he was abused by his father, the last king. But that's the story people always tell, isn't it, when they want to explain inexplicable behavior. You do it again that night. The spinning is effortless by now. As you spin, you perform little comic flourishes for the girl. You spin for a while one-handed. You spin with your back to the wheel. You spin with your eyes closed. She laughs and claps her hands. This time, when you've finished, she gives you a ring. It, too, is cheap, silver with a speck of diamond sunk into it. She says, this was my mother's. She slips it onto your pinky. It fits just barely. You stand for a moment staring at your hand, which is not by any standards a pretty sight with its knobbed knuckles and thick yellowed nails. But here it is, your hand with her ring on one of its fingers. And you slip away without speaking. You're afraid that anything you say would be embarrassingly earnest. The next day, right. 
one last room full of straw, twice the size again. The king insists on this third and final act of alchemy. He believes, it seems, that value resides in threes, which would explain the three garish and unnecessary towers he's had plunked onto the castle walls, the three advisors to whom he never listens, the three annual parades in celebration of nothing in particular beyond the king himself. And if the girl pulls it off one more time, the king has announced he'll marry her, make her his queen. That's the reward. Marriage to a man who'd have had you decapitated if you failed to produce not just one but three miracles? Surely the girl will refuse. You go to the castle one more time and do it again. It should be routine by now, the sight of the golden straw piling up, the fiery gleam of it. But somehow repetition hasn't rendered it commonplace. It is, or so you imagine, a little like being in love, like wondering anew every morning at the outwardly unremarkable fact that your lover is there, in bed, beside you, about to open her eyes, and that your face will be the first thing she sees. When you finish, she says, I'm afraid I have nothing more to give you. You pause. You're shocked to realize that you want something more from her. You've told yourself the past two nights that the necklace and the ring are marvels, but extraneous acts of gratitude, that you'd have done what you did for nothing more than the sight of her thankful face. It's surprising, then, that on this final night you don't want to leave unrewarded, that you desire with upsetting urgency another token a talisman, a further piece of evidence. Maybe it's because you know you won't see her again. You say, you aren't going to marry him, are you? She looks down at the floor, which is littered with stray strands of gold. She says, I'd be queen. Uh, But you'd be married to him, the man who was going to kill you if you didn't produce the goods. She lifts her head and looks at you. My father could live in the palace with me. (laughs) And yet you can't marry a monster. My father would live in the castle. The king's physicians would attend to him. He's ill. Grain dust gets into your lungs. You're as surprised as she is when you hear yourself say, Promise me your firstborn child then. She stares at you, dumbfounded, by way of an answer. You've said it, though. You may as well forge on. Let me raise your first child, you say. I'll be a good father. I'll teach the child magic. I'll teach the child generosity and forgiveness. The king isn't going to do much along those lines, don't you think? If I refuse, she says, will you expose me? Oh, You don't want to descend to blackmail. You wish she hadn't posed the question, and you have no idea how to answer. You'd never expose her. But you're so sure of your ability to rescue the still unconceived child who, without your help, 
will be abused by his father. Don't men who've been abused always do the same to their children and become another punishing and capricious king who'll demand meaningless parades and still gaudier towers and God knows what else? She interprets your silence as a yes. Yes, he'll turn her in if she doesn't promise the child to you. She says, All right, then. I promise to give you my firstborn child. You could take it back. You could tell her that you were kidding, that you'd never take a woman's child. But you find, surprise, that you like this capitulation from her, this helpless compliance from the most recent embodiment of all the girls over all the years who've given you nothing, not even a curious glance. Welcome to the darker side of love. You leave again without speaking. This time, though, it's not for fear of embarrassment. This time it's because you're greedy and ashamed. It's because you want the child. You need the child, and yet you can't bear to be yourself at this moment. You can't stand there any longer enjoying your mastery over her. The royal wedding takes place. Suddenly, this common girl, this miller's daughter, is a celebrity. Her face emblazons everything from banners to souvenir coffee mugs. And she looks like a queen. Her glowy pallor, her dark, intelligent eyes are every bit as royal-looking as they need to be. A year later, when the little boy is born, you go to the palace. You've thought of letting it pass. Of course you have. But after those months of sleepless musing over the life ahead, you return to the solitude and hopelessness in which you've lived for the past year while people have tried to sell you keychains and medallions with the girl's face on them, assuming, as well they might, that you're just another customer. You, who wear the string of garnets under your shirt, the silver ring on your finger, you can't let it pass. Until those nights of spinning, no girl ever let you get close enough for you to realize that you're possessed of wit and allure and compassion, that you'd be coveted, you'd be sought after, if you were just... Neither Aunt Farfalee nor the oldest and most revered of the texts has anything to say about transforming gnomes into straight-spined, striking men. Aunt Farfalee told you in the low, rattling sigh it was once her voice, that magic has its limits, that the flesh has, over centuries, proved consistently vulnerable to afflictions, but never, not even for the most potent of wizards, subject to improvement. You go to the palace. It's not hard to get an audience with a king and queen. One of the traditions, a custom so old and entrenched that even this king doesn't dare abolish it, is the weekly Wednesday audience at which any citizen who wishes to can appear in the throne room and register a complaint. You're not the first in line. You wait as a corpulent young woman reports that a coven of witches in her district is causing the goats to walk on their hind legs and saunter into her house as if they owned the place. You wait as an old man objects to the new tax being levied on every denizen who lives past the age of 80 which is the king's way of claiming for himself what would otherwise be passed along to his subject heirs. 
As you stand in line, you see that the queen has noticed you. She looks entirely natural on the throne, every bit as much as she does on banners and mugs and keychains. She has noticed you, but nothing has changed in her expression. She listens with the customary feigned attention to the woman whose goats are sitting down to dinner with the family, to the man who doesn't want his fortune sucked away before he dies. It's widely known that these audiences with the king and queen never produce results of any kind. Still, people want to come and be heard. As you wait, you notice the girl's father, the miller, the former miller, seated among the members of court in a tricorn hat and an ermine collar. He regards the line of assembled supplicants with a dowager aunt's indignity and an expression of sentimental piety. The recently bankrupt man who gambled with his daughter's life and, thanks to you, won. When your turn arrives, you bow to queen and king. The king nods his traditional absent-minded acknowledgement. His head might have been carved from marble. His eyes are ice blue under the rim of his gem-encrusted crown. He might already be, in life, the stone likeness of himself that will top his sarcophagus. You say, my queen, I think you know what I've come for. The king looks disapprovingly at his wife. His face bears no hint of a question. He skips over the possibility of innocence. He wonders only what exactly it is that she has done. The queen nods. You can't tell what's going through her mind. Apparently she has learned during the past year how to evince an expression of royal opacity, something she did not possess when you were spinning the straw into gold for her. She says, please reconsider. <laughs> You're not about to reconsider. You might have considered reconsidering before you found yourself in the presence of these two, this tyrannical and ignorant monarch and the girl who agreed to marry him. You tell her that a promise was made. You leave it at that. She glances over at the king and can't conceal a moment of Miller's daughter nervousness. She turns to you again. She says, This is awkward, isn't it? You waver. You're assaulted by conflicting emotions. You understand the position she's in. You care for her. You're in love with her. It's probably the hopeless ferocity of your love that impels you to stand firm, to refuse her refusal. She who has, on one hand, succeeded spectacularly, and on the other, consented to what must be, at best, a chilly and brutal marriage. You can't simply relent and walk back out of the room. You can't bring yourself to be so debased. She doesn't care for you after all. You're someone who did her a favor once. She doesn't even know your name. With that thought, you decide to offer a compromise. You tell her, in the general spirit of her husband's fixation on threes, that she has three days to guess your name. If she can accomplish that, if she can guess your name within the next three days, the deal's off. If she can't? You do not, of course, say this aloud, 
But if she can't, you'll raise the child in a forest glade. You'll teach him the botanical names of the trees and the secret names of the animals. You'll instruct him in the arts of mercy and patience. And you'll see in the boy certain of her aspects, the great dark pools of her eyes, maybe, or her lightly exaggerated aristocratic nose. The queen nods in agreement. The king scowls. He can't, however, ask questions, not here, not with his subjects lined up before him. He can't appear to be baffled, underinformed, misused. You bow again, and as straight-backed as your torqued spine will allow, you stride out of the throne room. You'll never know what went on between queen and king once they were alone together. You hope that she confessed everything and insisted that a vow once made cannot be broken. You even go so far as to imagine that she defended you for your offer of a possible reprieve. You suspect, though, that she still feels endangered, that she can't be sure her husband will forgive her for allowing him to believe that she herself spun the straw into gold. Having produced a male heir, she has now, after all, rendered herself dispensable. And so, when confronted, she probably came up with some tale of spells and curses, some fabrication in which you, a hobgoblin, are entirely to blame. You wish you could feel more purely angry about that possibility. You wish you didn't sympathize, not even a little, with her in the predicament she's created for herself. This, then, is love. This is the experience from which you felt exiled for so long. This rage mixed with empathy. This simultaneous desire for admiration and victory. You wish you found it more unpleasant. Or at any rate, you wish you found it as unpleasant as it actually is. The queen sends messengers out all over the kingdom in an attempt to track down your name. You know how futile that is. You live in a cottage carved into a tree, so deep in the woods that no hiker or wanderer has ever passed by. You have no friends, and your relatives live not only far away, but in residences at least as obscure as your own. Consider Aunt Farfalee's tiny grotto, reachable only by swimming 50 feet underwater. You're not registered anywhere. You've never signed anything. You return to the castle the next day, and the next. The king scowls murderously. What story has he been told? As the queen runs through a gamut of guesses. Alphalus, Boren, Cassius, Cedric. Destrain, Fendral, Hadrian, Gavin, Gregory, Leif, Merrick, Rowan, Rolf, Satan, Tybalt, Salvador, Zane. No, 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 and no. It's looking good. But then, on the night of the second day, you make your fatal mistake. You'll ask yourself afterward, why did I build a fire in front of the cottage tree and do that little song and dance? It seems harmless at the time, and you're so happy, so sure. You find yourself sitting alone in your parlor, thinking of where the cradle should go, 
wondering who'll teach you how to fold a diaper. Picturing the child's face as he looks up at you and says, Father, it's too much just sitting inside like that by yourself. It's too little. You hurry out into the blackness of the forest night amid the chirruping of the insects and the far-off hoots of the owls. You build a fire. You grant yourself a pint of ale, and then you grant yourself another. And almost against your will, it seems that you're dancing around the fire. It seems that you've made up a song. Tonight I brew, tomorrow I bake, and then the queen's child I will take for little knows the royal dame. How likely is it that one of the youngest of the queen's messengers, the one most desperate for advancement, the one who's been threatened with dismissal, he's too fervent and dramatic in his delivery of messages. He bows too low. He's getting on the king's nerves. How likely is it that that particular young hustler, knowing every inch of the civilized kingdom to have been scoured already, every door knocked on, will think to go out into the woods that night, wondering if he's wasting precious time, but hoping that maybe, just maybe, the little man lives off the grid. How likely is it that he'll see your fire creep through the bracken and listen to the ditty you're singing? You return triumphant to the castle on the third and final afternoon. You are, for the first time in your life, a figure of power, of threat. Finally, you cannot be ignored or dismissed. The queen appears to be flustered. She says, well, then this is my last chance. You have the courtesy to refrain from answering. She says, is it Brom? No. Is it Leofric? No. Is it Ulrich? No. Then there is a moment, a millimoment, the tiniest imaginable fraction of time when the queen thinks of giving her baby to you. You see it on her face. There's a moment when she knows that she could rescue you as you once rescued her when she imagines throwing it all away and going off with you and her child. She does not, could not love you, but she remembers standing in the room on that first night when the straw started turning to cold, when she understood that an impossible situation had been met with an impossible result, when she unthinkingly laid her hand on the sackcloth-covered gnarls of your shoulder, and she thinks, whoosh, by the time you've read whoosh, she's no longer thinking it, that she could leave her heartless husband, she could live in the woods with you and the child, whoosh. The king shoots her an arctic glare. She looks at you, her eyes avid and level, her neck arched and her shoulders flung back. She speaks your name. It's not possible. The king grins a conquering, predatory grin. The queen turns away. The world, which was about to transform itself, changes back again. The world reveals itself to be nothing more than you, 
about to scuttle out of the throne room, hurry through town, and return to the empty little house that's always there, that's always been there, waiting for you. You stamp your right foot. You stamp it so hard with such enchantment-compelled force that it goes right through the marble floor, sinks to your ankle. You stamp your left foot. Same thing. You are standing now, trembling, insane with fury and disappointment, ankle-deep in the royal floor. The queen keeps her face averted. The king emits a peal of laughter that sounds like defeat itself. And with that, you split in half. It's the strangest sensation imaginable. It's as if some strip of invisible tape that's been holding you together from mid-forehead to crotch had suddenly been stripped away. It's no more painful than pulling off a bandage. And then you fall onto your knees and you're looking at yourself twice. Both of you pitched forward, blinking in astonishment at a self who was blinking in astonishment at you, who were blinking in astonishment at him, who was blinking in astonishment at you. The queen silently summons two of the guards, who pull you in two pieces from the floor in which you become mired, who carry you one half a piece out of the room. They take you all the way back to your place in the woods and leave you there. There are two of you now. Neither is sufficient unto himself, but you learn over time to join your two halves together and hobble around. There are limits to what you can do, though you're able to get from place to place. Each half, naturally, requires the cooperation of the other, and you find yourself getting snappish with yourself. You find yourself cursing yourself for your clumsiness, your over-eagerness, your lack of consideration for your other half. You feel it doubly. Still, you go on. Still, you step in tandem, make your careful way up and down the stairs, admonishing, warning each of you, urging the other to slow down or speed up or wait a second. What else can you do? Each would be helpless without the other. Each would be stranded, laid flat, abandoned, bereft. Escape from New York. It had been a very long time since he'd been responsible for another human. Never had he organized travel for himself or anybody. But it was his fault they were all three in the city, and so it fell to him. There was perhaps even something a little exciting about discovering for the first time in his life that he was not useless, that his father was wrong, and in fact, he was capable. He called Elizabeth first. I'm in a state of terror, Elizabeth said. Wait, Michael said, hearing a beep on the line. Let me bring in Marlon. The world's gone crazy, Elizabeth said. I can't even believe what I'm looking at. Hi, Marlon, Michael said. So, where are we, Marlon said. Where are we, Elizabeth said. We're in a state of terror. That's where we are. We're all right, Marlon grumbled. 
He sounded far away. We'll handle it. Michael could hear Marlon's TV in the background. It was tuned to the same channel Michael was watching, but only Michael could see the images on the screen replicated simultaneously through his own window. A strange doubling sensation, like when you stand on a stage and look up at yourself on the jumbotron. Elizabeth and Marlon were staying uptown. Normally, Michael too would be staying uptown. Until five days ago, he'd almost never set foot below 42nd Street. Everyone, his brothers and sisters, all his West Coast friends, had warned him not to go downtown. It's dangerous downtown. It's always been that way. Just stick with what you know. Stay at the Carlisle. But because the helipad near the garden had, for some reason, been out of commission, it had been decided he should stay downtown for reasons of proximity and to avoid traffic. Now Michael looked south and saw a sky darkened with ash. The ash seemed to be moving toward him. Downtown was really so much worse than anyone in L.A. could even begin to imagine. Some things you can't handle, Elizabeth said. I'm in a state of terror. There are no flights allowed, Michael said, trying to feel capable, filling them in. No one can charter, not even the very important people. Bullshit, Marlon said. You think Weinstein's not on a plane right now? You think Eisner's not on a plane? Marlon, in case you've forgotten, Elizabeth said, I am also a Jew. Am I on a plane, Marlon? Am I on a plane? Marlon groaned. Oh, for Christ's sake, I didn't mean it that way. Well, how the hell did you mean it? Michael bit his lip. The truth was, these two dear friends of his were both closer friends to him than they were to each other, and there were often these awkward moments when he had to remind them of the love thread that connected all three, which to Michael was so obvious. It was woven from a shared suffering, a unique form of suffering, that few people on this earth have ever known or will ever have the chance to experience, but which all of them, Michael, Liz and Marlon, happened to have undergone to the highest degree possible. As Marlon sometimes said, the only other guy who knew what this feels like got nailed to a couple of planks of wood. Sometimes, if Elizabeth wasn't around, he would add, by the Jews. But Michael tried not to linger on these aspects of Marlon, preferring to remember the love thread, for that was all that really mattered in the end. I think what Marlon meant, Michael began, but Marlon cut him off. Let's focus here, we've got to focus. We can't fly, Michael said quietly. I don't know why, really. That's just what they're saying. I'm packing, Elizabeth said, and down the line came the sound of something precious smashing on the floor. I don't even know what I'm packing, but I'm packing. Let's be rational about this, Marlon said. There's a lot of car services. I can't think of any right now. On TV, you see them. They got all kinds of names. Hertz? That's one. There must be others. I am truly in a state of terror, Elizabeth said. You said that already, Marlon shouted. Get a hold of yourself. I'll try and call a car place, Michael said. The phones down here are kind of screwy. On a pad, he wrote, Hertz. Essentials only, Marlon said, referring to Liz's packing. This is not the fucking QE2. This is not fucking cocktail hour with good old dick up in San Moritz. Essentials. It'll be a big car, Michael murmured. He hated arguments. It'll sure as hell have to be, Elizabeth said, and Michael knew she was being sarcastic and referring to Marlon's weight. Marlon knew it too. 
The line went silent. Michael bit his lip some more. He could see in the vanity mirror that his lip looked very red, but then he remembered that he had permanently tattooed it that colour. Elizabeth, listen to me, Marlon said, in his angry but controlled mumble, which gave Michael an inappropriate little thrill. He couldn't help it. It was just such classic Marlon. Put that goddamn crup on your pinky and let's get the fuck out of here. Marlon hung up. Elizabeth started crying. There was a beep on the line. I should probably take that, Michael said. At noon, Michael put on his usual disguise and picked up the car in an underground garage near Herald Square. At 12.27pm, he pulled up in front of the Carlisle. Jesus Christ, that was fast, Marlon said. He was sitting on the sidewalk, on one of those portable, collapsible chairs you sometimes see people bring along when they camp outside your hotel all night in the hope that you'll step out onto the balcony and wave to them. He wore a funny bucket hat, like a fisherman's, elasticated sweatpants and a huge Hawaiian shirt. I took the super-fast river road, Michael said. He didn't mean to look too smug about it, given the context, but he couldn't help but be a little bit proud. Marlon opened a carton he had on his lap and took out a cheeseburger. He eyed the vehicle. I hear you drive like a maniac. I do go fast, Marlon, but I also stay in control. You can trust me, Marlon. I promise I'll get us out of here. Michael felt really sad seeing Marlon like that, eating a cheeseburger on the sidewalk. He was so fat, and his little chair was under a lot of strain. The whole situation looked very precarious. This was also the moment when he noticed that Marlon wasn't wearing any shoes. Have you seen Liz? Michael asked. What is that hunk of junk anyway? Marlon asked. Michael had forgotten. He leaned over and took the manual out of the glove compartment. A Toyota Camry. It's all they had. He was about to add, with a roomy back seat, but thought better of it. Japanese are a wise people, Marlon said. Behind Marlon, the doors of the Carlisle opened, and a bellboy emerged, walking backward with a tower of Louis Vuitton luggage on a trolley and Elizabeth at his side. She was wearing a lot of diamonds, several necklaces, bracelets up her arms, and a mink stole covered with so many brooches it looked like a pincushion. You have got to be kidding me, Marlon said. A logician, a negotiator. Michael did not usually have much call to think of himself in this way. But now, back on the road and speeding towards Bethlehem, he allowed the thought that people had always overjudged and misunderestimated him, and maybe in the end you don't really know a person until that person is truly tested by a big event like the apocalypse. Of course, people forgot he'd been raised a witness. In one way or another, he'd been expecting this day for a long, long time. Still, if anyone had told him 24 hours ago that he would be able to convince Elizabeth, she who had once bought a seat on a plane for a dress so it could meet her in Istanbul, to join him on an escape from New York in a funky old Japanese car, abandoning five of her Louis Vuitton cases to a city under attack, well, he truly wouldn't have believed it. Who knew he had such powers of persuasion? He'd never had to persuade anyone of anything, least of all his own genius, which was, of course, a weird childhood gift he'd never asked for and which had proved impossible to give back. 
maybe even harder was getting Marlon to agree that they would not stop again for food until they hit Pennsylvania. He leaned forward to see if there were any more enemy combatants in the sky. There were not. He and his friends were really escaping. He had taken control and was making the right decisions for everybody. He looked across at Liz in the passenger seat. She was calm at last, but her eyeliner continued to run down her beautiful face. So much eyeliner. Everything Michael knew about eyeliner, he'd learned from Liz, but now he realised he had something to teach her on the subject. Make it permanent. Tattoo it right round the tear ducts. That way, it never runs. Am I losing my mind? Marlon asked. Or did you just say Bethlehem? Michael adjusted the rearview mirror until he could see Marlon stretched out on the back seat, reading a book and breaking into the emergency Twinkies, which Michael thought they had all agreed to save till Allentown. It's a town in Pennsylvania, Michael said. We'll stop there, eat, and then we'll go again. Are you reading? Elizabeth asked. How can you be reading at this moment? What should I be doing? Marlon inquired somewhat testily. Shakespeare in the park? I just don't understand how a person can be reading when their country is under attack. We could all die at any moment. If you read your Sartre, honey, you'd know that was true at all times, in all situations. Elizabeth scowled and folded her twinkling hands in her lap. I just don't see how a person can read at such a time. Well, Liz, Marlon said, laying it on thick, let me enlighten you. See, I guess I read because I am what you call a reader. Because I am interested in the life of the mind, I admit it. I don't even have a screening room, no. Instead, I have a library. Imagine that. Imagine that because it happens that my highest calling in life is not to put my fat little hands in a pile of sandy shit outside grandma's. Oh, brother, here we go. Because I actually aspire to comprehend the ways and inclinations of the human. These people are trying to kill us, Liz screamed, and Michael felt it was really time to intervene. Not us, he ventured. I guess, like, not especially us. But then a thought came to him. Elizabeth. You don't think. He had not thought this thought until now. He had been too busy with logistics, but now he began to think it. And he could tell everyone else in the car was thinking it too. How would I know? Liz cried, twisting her biggest ring around her smallest finger. Maybe. First the financial centers, then the government folks, and then... The very important people, Michael whispered. Wouldn't be at all surprised. Marlon said, turning solemn. We're exactly the kinds of sons of bitches who'd make a nice trophy on some crazy motherfucker's wall. He sounded scared, at last. And hearing Marlon scared made Michael as scared as he'd been all day. You never want to see your father scared or your mother cry. And as far as Michael's chosen family went, that's exactly what was happening right now. In this bad Japanese car, that did not smell of new leather or new anything. It made him wish he'd tried harder to bring Liza along. On the other hand, maybe that would have been worse. It was almost as if his chosen family were as crushing to his emotional health as his real family. And that thought was really not one that he could allow himself to have on this day of all days, on any day. 
We're all under a lot of strain, Michael said. His voice was a little wobbly, but he didn't worry about crying. That didn't happen easily anymore, not since he'd tattooed around his tear ducts. This is a very high-stress situation, he said. He tried to visualize himself as a responsible, humane father, taking his kids on a family road trip. And we have to try and love each other. Thank you, Michael, Elizabeth said, and for a couple of miles, all was peaceful. Then Marlon started in again on the ring. So, these Krups, they make the weapons that knock off your people by the millions, and then you buy up their baubles. How does that work? Elizabeth twisted round in the front seat until she could look Marlon in the eye. What you don't understand is that when Richard put this ring on my finger, it stopped meaning death and started meaning love. Oh, I see. You have the power to turn death into love, just like that. Elizabeth smiled discreetly at Michael. She squeezed his hand, and he squeezed hers back. Just like that, she whispered. Marlon snorted. Well, good luck to you. But back in the real world, the thing is what it is, and thinking don't make it otherwise. Elizabeth took a compact from a hidden fold of her stole and reapplied some very red lipstick. You know, she told him, Andy once said it would be very glamorous to be reincarnated as my ring. That's an actual quotation. Sounds about right, Marlon said, spoiling the moment and sounding pretty sneery, which seemed to Michael more than a little unfair. For whatever you thought about Andy, personally, as a person, surely if anybody had understood their mutual suffering, if anyone had predicted, profit-like, the exact length and strength and connective angles and occasionally throttling power of their three-way love thread, it was Andy. It is no gift I tender, Marlon read very loudly. Alone is all I can, but do not scorn the lender. Man gets no more from man. This is not the time for poetry, Elizabeth shouted. This is exactly the time for poetry, Marlon shouted. Just then, Michael remembered that there were a few CDs in the glove box. If he believed in anything, he believed in the healing power of music. He reached over to open it and passed the cases to Elizabeth. I honestly don't think we should stop in Ohio, she said, examining them and pushing a disc into the slit. We could take turns driving. We'll drive through the night. I can't drive when I'm tired, Marlon said, hitching himself up into a semi-upright position. Or hungry. Maybe I should do my shift now. And I'll do the night shift, Michael said, brightening. And he began looking for a place to stop. He could not get over how well he was handling the apocalypse so far. Sure, he was terrified, but at the same time, oddly elated and vitally not especially medicated. For his assistant had all his stuff, and he hadn't told her he was escaping from New York until they were already on the road, fearing his assistant would try to stop him as she usually tried to stop him doing the things he most wanted to do. Now he was beyond everyone's reach. He struggled to think of another moment in his life when he'd felt so free. Was that terrible to say? He had to confess to himself that he felt high, 
and now tried to identify the source. The adrenaline of self-survival, mixed with the pity, mixed with the horror. He wondered, is this the feeling people have in war zones and the like? Or, another strange thought, was this in fact what civilian people generally feel every day of their lives, in their sad, old, rank-smelling Toyota Camrys, sitting in traffic on their way to their workplaces or camping outside your hotel window or fainting in front of your dancing image on the jumbotron. This feeling of no escape from your situation, of forced acceptance, of no escape even from your escape. Marlon, did you know that when Liz and I, when we have sleepovers... Michael said a little too quickly and aware that he was babbling but unable to stop. Well, I really don't sleep at all. Not one wink. Unless you literally knock me out, I'm literally awake all night long. So I'm good to drive all the way to Brentwood, I mean, if we have to. Don't stop till you get enough, Marlon murmured and lay back down. I dreamed a dream in time gone by, Liz sang along with the CD. When hope was high and life worth living, I dreamed that love would never die. I prayed that God would be forgiving. It was the sixth or seventh go-around. They were almost in Harrisburg, having been considerably slowed by two stops at Burger King, one at McDonald's, and three separate visits to KFC. If you play that song one more time, Marlon said, eating a bucket of wings. I'm going to kill you myself. The sun was setting on the deep orange polyvinyl chloride blinds in their booth, and Michael felt strongly that his new role as the decider must also include some aspect of spiritual guidance. To that end, he passed Marlon the maple syrup and said in his high-pitched but newly determined tones, You know, guys, we've driven six hours already and, well, we haven't talked at all about what happened back there. They were sitting in an IHOP, just the other side of the Appalachian Mountains, with their mirrored shades on, eating pancakes. Michael had decided, two fast food joints and 80 miles ago, to leave his usual disguise in the trunk of the car. It had become obvious that it wasn't necessary. No, not today. And now, with an overwhelming feeling of liberation, he removed his shades, too. For, as it was in KFC, in Burger King, and beneath the Golden Arches, so it was in this IHOP. Every soul in the place was watching television. Even the waitress who served them watched the television while she served and spilled a little hot coffee on Michael's glove and didn't say sorry and didn't clean it up, nor did she notice that Marlon wasn't wearing shoes or that he was Marlon, or that resting beside the salt shaker was a diamond as big as the Ritz. I feel like one minute we were in the garden, and it was a dream, Elizabeth said slowly. And we were happy. We were celebrating this marvelous boy. She squeezed Michael's hand. Celebrating 30 years of your wonderful talent, my dear. And everything was just beautiful. And then she hugged her coffee mug with both hands and brought it to her lips. And then, well, the tigers came. And now it really feels like the end of days. I know that sounds silly, but that's how it feels to me. There's a childlike part of me that just wants to rewind 24 hours. Make that 24 years, 
Marlon snapped, but with his classic wry Marlon smile, and all you could do was forgive him. Scratch that, he said, hamming it up now. Make it 40. Elizabeth pursed her lips and made an adorable comic face. She looked like Amy in Little Women, doing some sly calculation in her head. Come to think of it, she said, 40 would work out just swell for me too. Not me, Michael said, letting a lot of air out of his mouth in a great rush so that he would be brave enough to say what he wanted to say, whether or not it was appropriate, whether or not it was the normal kind of thing you said in abnormal times like these. But perhaps this was his only real advantage in this moment over every other person in the IHOP and in most of America, nothing normal had ever happened to him, not ever, not in his whole conscious life. And so there was a little part of him that was always prepared for the monstrous, familiar with it, and familiar too with its necessary counterbalancing force, love. He reached across the table and took the hands of his two dear friends in his own. I don't want to be in any other moment than this one he told them. Here, with you too, no matter how awful it gets, I want to be with you and with all these people, with everyone on earth, in this moment. They were all silent for a second, and then Marlon raised his still gorgeous eyebrows, sighed, and said, Hate to break it to you, buddy, but you don't have much choice about it either way. Looks like no one's going to beam us up. Whatever this shit is, he gestured toward the air in front of them, to the molecules within the air, to time itself. We're stuck in it, just like everybody. Yes, Michael said. He was smiling, and it was the presence of a smile, unprecedented in that IHOP on that day, that, more than anything else, finally attracted the waitress's attention. Yes, he said. I know. Alan Bean plus four. Traveling to the moon was way less complicated this year than it was back in 1969, as the four of us proved... Not that anyone gives a whoop. You see, over cold beers on my patio, with the crescent moon a delicate princess fingernail low in the west, I told Steve Wong that if he threw, say, a hammer with enough muscle, said tool would make a 500,000-mile figure eight, sail around that very moon, and return to Earth like a boomerang. And wasn't that fascinating? Steve Wong works at Home Depot, so has access to many hammers. He offered to chuck a few. His co-worker, M-Dash, who'd shortened his long tribal name to rap star length, wondered how one would catch a red-hot hammer falling at a 1,000 miles an hour. Anna, who does something in web design, said that there'd be nothing to catch, as the hammer would burn up like a meteor, and she was right. Plus, she didn't buy the simplicity of my cosmic throw-weight return. She is ever doubtful of my space program bona fides. She says I'm always Apollo 13 this and Lunacod that and have begun to falsify details in order to sound like an expert. 
and she is right about that, too. I keep all my nonfiction on a pocket-sized Kobo digital reader, so I whipped out a chapter of No Way, Ivan, Why the CCCP Lost the Race to the Moon, written by an immigrant professor with an axe to grind. According to him, in the mid-60s, the Soviets hoped to trump the Apollo program with just such a figure-eight mission. No orbit, no landing, just photos and crowing rights. The Reds sent off an unmanned Soyuz with, supposedly, a mannequin in a spacesuit. But so many things went south, they didn't dare try again. Not even with the dog, Kaputnik. Anna is as thin and smart as a whip, and driven like no one else I have ever dated, for three exhausting weeks. She saw a challenge here. She wanted to succeed where the Russians had failed. It would be fun. We'd all go, she said, and that was that. But when? I suggested that we schedule liftoff in conjunction with the 45th anniversary of Apollo 11, the most famous space flight in history. But that was a no-go, as Steve Wong had dental work scheduled for the third week of July. How about November, when Apollo 12 landed in the ocean of storms, also 45 years ago, but forgotten by 99.999% of the people on Earth? Anna had to be a bridesmaid at her sister's wedding the week after Halloween, so the best date for the mission turned out to be September 27th, a Saturday. Astronauts in the Apollo era had spent thousands of hours piloting jet planes and earning engineering degrees. They had to practice escaping from launch pad disasters by sliding down long cables to the safety of thickly padded bunkers. They had to know how slide rules worked. We did none of that, though we did test fly our booster on the 4th of July out of Steve Wong's huge driveway in Oxnard, hoping that, with all the fireworks, our unmanned first stage would blow through the night sky unnoticed. Mission accomplished. That rocket cleared Baja and is right now zipping around the Earth every 90 minutes, and let me state clearly, for the sake of multiple government agencies, will probably burn up harmlessly on re-entry in 12 to 14 months. M. Dash, who was born in a sub-Saharan village, has a super brain. In junior high, with minimal English skills, he won a science fair award of merit with an experiment on ablative materials which caught fire to the delight of everyone. Since having a working heat shield is implied in the phrase returning safely to Earth, M. Dash was in charge of that and all things pyrotechnic, including the explosive bolts for stage separation. Anna did the math, all the load-lift ratios, orbital mechanics, fuel mixtures, and formulas, the stuff I pretend to know but which actually leaves me in a fog. My contribution was the command module, a cramped, headlight-shaped spheroid that was cobbled together by a very rich pool supply magnate who was hell-bent on getting into the private aerospace business to make him some big-time NASA cash. He died in his sleep just before his 94th birthday. And his fourth wife-slash-widow agreed to sell me the capsule for a hundred bucks, provided I got it out of the garage by the weekend. I named the capsule the Allen Bean in honor of the lunar module pilot of Apollo 12 the fourth man to walk on the moon, and the only one I ever met in a Houston-area Mexican restaurant in 1986. He was paying the cashier, as anonymous as a balding orthopedist, when I yelled out, 
Holy cow, you're Al Bean. He gave me his autograph and drew a tiny astronaut above his name. Since four of us would be a-coming around the moon, I needed to make room inside the Allen Bean and eliminate pounds. We'd have no mission control to boss us around, so I ripped out all the comm. I replaced every bolt, screw, hinge, clip, and connector with duct tape, three bucks a roll at Home Depot. Our privy was a shower curtain for privacy. I've heard from an experienced source that a trip to the John in zero gravity requires that you strip naked and give yourself half an hour, so yeah, privacy was key. I replaced the outer opening hatch and its bulky lock evac apparatus with a steel alloy plug that had a big window and a self-sealing bib. In the vacuum of space, the air pressure inside the Allen Bean would force the hatch closed and airtight. Simple physics. Announce that you are flying to the moon and everyone assumes you mean to land on it. To plant the flag, kangaroo hop in 1-6 gravity, and collect rocks to bring home. None of which we were going to do. We were flying around the moon. Landing is a whole different ballgame, and as for stepping out onto the surface, hell, choosing which of the four of us would get out first to become the 13th person to leave boot prints up there would have led to so much bad blood that our crew would have broken up long before T-minus 10 seconds and counting. Assembling the three stages of the good ship Allen Bean took two days. We packed granola bars and water in squeeze-top bottles, then pumped in the liquid oxygen for the two booster stages and the hypergolic chemicals for the one-shot firing of the translunar motor, the mini-rocket that would fling us to our lunar rendezvous. Most of Oxnard came around to Steve Wong's driveway to ogle the Allen Bean, not a one of them knowing who Allen Bean was or why we'd named the rocket ship after him. The kids begged for peeks inside the spacecraft, but we didn't have the insurance. What are you waiting for? You gonna blast off soon? To every knothead who would listen, I explained launch windows and trajectories, showing them on my Moon Phase app, free, how we had to intersect the moon's orbit at exactly the right moment, or lunar gravity would, ah, hell, there's the moon, point your rocket at it, and put on a show. 24 seconds after clearing the tower, our first stage was burning all stops, and the Max-Q app, 99 cents, showed us pulling 11.8 times our weight at sea level. Not that we needed iPhones to tell us this. We were fighting for breath with Anna screaming, get off. My chest. But no one was on her chest. She was, in fact, sitting on me, crushing me like a lap dance from an offensive lineman. Kaboom when M-Dash's dynamite bolts in the second stage fired as programmed. A minute later, dust, loose change, and a couple of ballpoint pens floated up from behind our seats, signaling, hey, we'd achieved orbit. Weightlessness is as much fun as you can imagine. But troublesome for some spacegoers, who for no apparent reason spend their first hours up there upchucking as if they'd overdone it at the pre-launch reception. It's one of those facts never made public by NASA PR or in astronaut memoirs. After three revolutions of the Earth, as we finished running the checklist for our translunar injection, Steve Wong's tummy finally settled down. Somewhere over Africa, we opened the valves in the translunar motor, the hypergolics worked their chemical magic, and, boosh, we were hauling the mail to Moonberry RFD, 
our escape velocity a crisp seven miles per second, Earth getting smaller and smaller in the window. The Americans who went to the moon before us had computers so primitive they couldn't get email or use Google to settle arguments. The iPads we took had something like 70 billion times the capacity of those Apollo-era dial-ups and were mucho handy, especially during the downtime on our long haul. M-Dash used his to watch season four of Breaking Bad. We took hundreds of selfies with Earth in the window and, plinking a ping-pong ball off the center seat, played a tableless table tennis tournament, which was won by Anna. I worked the Attitude Jets in pulse mode, yawing and pitching the Alan Bean for views of some of the few stars that were visible in the naked sunlight. And Terry's, Nunky, the globular cluster NGC 6333, none of which twinkle when you're up there among them. The big event of translunar space is crossing the equigravisphere, a boundary as invisible as the international dateline, but for the Alan Bean, the Rubicon. On this side of the EQS, Earth's gravity was tugging us back, slowing our progress, bidding us to return home to the life-affirming benefits of water, atmosphere, and a magnetic field. Once we crossed, the moon grabbed hold, wrapping us in her ancient silvery embrace, whispering to us to hurry, 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 to wink in wonder at her magnificent desolation. At the exact moment that we reached the threshold, Anna awarded us origami cranes made out of aluminum foil, which we taped onto our shirts like pilot's wings. I put the Allen Bean in a passive thermal control barbecue roll, our moon-bound ship rotating on an invisible spit so as to distribute the solar heat. Then we dimmed the lights, taped a sweatshirt over the window to keep the sunlight from sweeping across the cabin, and slept each of us curled up in a comfortable nook of our little rocket ship. When I tell people that I've seen the far side of the moon, they often say, you mean the dark side? As though I'd fallen under the spell of Darth Vader or Pink Floyd. In fact, both sides of the moon get the same amount of sunshine, just on different shifts. Because the moon was a waxing gibbous to the folks back home, we had to wait out the shadowed portion on the other side. In that darkness, with no sunlight and the moon blocking the Earth's reflection, I pulsed the Allen Bean around so that our window faced outbound for a view of the infinite time-space continuum that was worthy of IMAX. Unblinking stars in subtle hues of red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, our galaxy stretching as far as our eyes were wide, a diamond-blue carpet against a black that would have been terrifying had it not been so mesmerizing. Then there was light, snapping on as if M-Dash had flipped a switch. I tweaked the controls, and there below us was the surface of the moon. Wow. Gorgeous in a way that strained any use of the word. A rugged place that produced ooze and awe. The Luna Ticket app, 99 cents, showed us traversing south to north, but we were mentally lost in space, the surface as chaotic as a wind-blown, gray-capped bay, until I matched the Poincaré impact basin with the This Is Our Moon guide on my Kobo. The Allen Bean was soaring 153 kilometers high, 95.06 miles Americanus, at a speed faster than that of a bullet from a gun. 
and the moon was slipping by so fast that we were running out of far side. A resmi crater had white, finger-painted streaks. Heaviside showed rills and depression like river washouts. We split Dufay right in half, a flyover from its six to its twelve, the rim a steep, sharp razor. Mare Moscoviense was far to port, a mini version of the Ocean of Storms, where, four and a half decades ago, the real Alan Bean spent two days hiking, collecting rocks, taking photos. Lucky man. Our brains could only take in so much, so our iPhones did the recording, and I stopped calling out the sights. Though I did recognize Campbell and D'Alembert, large craters linked by the smaller Sleefer, just as we were about to head home over the moon's North Pole. Steve Wong had queued up a certain musical track for what would be Earthrise, but had to reboot the Bluetooth on Anna's jam box and was nearly late for his cue. M-Dash yelled, Hit play! Hit play! Just as a blue and white patch of life, a slice of all that we have made of ourselves, all that we have ever been, pierced the black cosmos above the sawtooth horizon. I was expecting something classical, Franz Joseph Haydn or George Harrison. But the circle of life from the Lion King scored our home planet's rise over the plaster of Paris moon. Really? A Disney show tune? But, you know, that rhythm and that chorus and the double meaning of the lyrics caught me right in the throat, and I choked up. Tears popped off my face and joined the others' tears, which were floating around the Allen Bean. Anna gave me a hug like I was still her boyfriend. We cried. We all cried. You'd have done the same. Coasting home was one fat anticlimax. Despite the never-spoken possibility of our burning up on re-entry like an obsolete spy satellite circa 1962. Of course, we were all chuffed, as the English say, that we'd made the trek and maxed out the memories on our iPhones with iPhotos. But questions arose about what we were going to do upon our return, apart from making some bitchin' posts on Instagram. If I ever run into Al Bean again, I'll ask him what life has been like for him since he twice crossed the equigravisphere. Does he suffer melancholia on a quiet afternoon as the world spins on automatic? Will I occasionally get the blues because nothing holds a wonder equal to splitting Dufay down the middle? TBD, I suppose. Whoa, Kamchatka, Anna called out as our heat shield expired into millions of grain-sized comets. We were arcing down over the Arctic Circle, gravity once again commanding that we who went up must come down. When the chute pyro shot off, the Allen Bean jolted our bones, causing the jam box to lose its duct tape purchase and conk M-dash in the forehead. By the time we splashed down off Oahu, a trail of blood was running from the ugly gash between his eyebrows. Anna tossed him her bandana because guess what no one had thought to take around the moon? To anyone reading this with plans to imitate us? Band-Aids. At Stable One, that is bobbing in the ocean rather than having disintegrated into plasma, M-Dash tripped the rescue-us flares that he'd rigged under the parachute jettison system. I opened the pressure equalizing valve a tad early, and oops, noxious fumes from the excess fuel burn-off were sucked into the capsule, making us even queasier, what with the mal de mer. Once the cabin pressure was at the same PSI as outside, 
Steve Wong was able to uncork the main hatch, and the Pacific Ocean breeze whooshed in as soft as a kiss from Mother Earth. But owing to what turned out to be a huge design flaw, that same Pacific Ocean began to join us in our spent little craft. The Allen Bean's second historic voyage was going to be to Davy Jones's locker. Anna, thinking fast, held aloft our Apple products, but Steve Wong lost his Samsung, the Galaxy, ha, which disappeared into the lower equipment bay as the rising seawater bade us exit. The day boat from the Kahala Hilton, filled with curious snorkelers, pulled us out of the water, the English speakers on board telling us that we smelled horrid, the foreigners giving us a wide berth. After a shower and a change of clothes, I was ladling fruit salad from a decorative dugout canoe at the hotel buffet table when a lady asked me if I had been in that thing that came down out of the sky. Yes, I told her. I had gone all the way to the moon and returned safely to the surly bonds of Earth, just like Alan Bean. Who? she said. This has been a special preview episode of The Author's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. If you enjoyed this preview and would like to hear more, you'll need to subscribe to The Author's Voice on your podcast app. You might also enjoy The New Yorker Radio Hour, The New Yorker Poetry Podcast, and The New Yorker's Politics and More Podcast. The weekly audio edition of The New Yorker is available on iTunes or at audible.com. Subscribers to the magazine can access more than 200 New Yorker fiction pieces read by their authors on newyorker.com and in the digital edition of the magazine, available at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. Our theme music is by Jordan Batiste and Ross Michaels of North American Plastics. This episode was produced by Jill Duboff and Alex Barron, with help from Amanda Cormier of newyorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts.